Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This week, we're telling the story of the 2002 Uberlingen disaster. Uh, we're joined by our friends from Bath and Body Parts. Uh, I hope you enjoy this collaboration and be sure to check them out. So, hey guys. Hey. How's it going? It's good. Pretty good. How is everybody? It's going to be a big, wild collaboration. So for anybody who is listening to this on the Bath and Body Parts podcast, my name is Casey. My name is Mariah. And we are from the Podcrashed. And for anybody who's listening to this on the Podcrashed. I'm Cassie. <laughs> and I'm Melanie. And yeah, we're from Bath and Body Parts. We're super excited for this collaboration. Yes. So today uh, I'm going to tell a story, a terrible story. So for reference, <laughs> the pod crashed. Uh, we do a show about aviation disasters and incidents and Bath and Body Parts is a... We're just a true crime. Yeah, yeah. Just... <laughs> we, we cover different cases each week and we have a variety of different themes i guess of our true crime cases we cover a variety of different yeah, types so today is aviation disaster meets true crime which is new for everyone i think so yeah very exciting new for everyone. yeah exciting yeah we've been wanting to do kind of a true crime aviation thing for a while so i'm really excited about this story yeah and I'm as excited as I can be knowing what the story is about. Right. So I am excited about the collaboration. Yeah. But yeah, so we're going back to the summer of 2002 and we're going to start out in the small village of Ufa. Ufa is a small village in Russia where Muslims and Christians had coexisted for centuries, and that makes it a significant site in different ways. So obviously 2002, it's immediately post 9-11. There's a lot of global anti-Muslim sentiment, mm -hmm. and Ufa is kind of representative of the harmony that can exist between Muslims and Christians. And uh, as a result, UNESCO has decided to organize a trip for the bright young stars of Ufa to go to Barcelona. Uh, they're split 50-50, Christians and Muslims. They're taking a group of children to Barcelona on, I guess, an artistic trip. So the kids who were selected for the trip were kids who are artists or gymnasts or musicians, or these are just, you know, really brilliant kids, kids who know what to do with the chemistry set, whatever. Like <laughs> these are kind of the brightest, best children of Ufa. And uh, they're organizing a fun trip abroad to celebrate the fact that they can get along despite being <laughs> different Abrahamic religions. Yay. So there's a, a group of 45 kids, plus some of their parents and some chaperones, some teachers, you know what a school trip is like. And they charter a plane and they're going to go to Barcelona and they drive to the wrong airport. Oh no. And they miss their flight. Ugh. And in a different world, that's the end of the story. Uh, that that part I feel like is so devastating so, to yeah. me. Yep. Uh. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I feel like in aviation disasters, that is such the that like thing where there's one thing that happens and then just mm. everything mm -hmm. spirals out of control from there. I mean, I guess that's how life is normally, but I don't know. For aviation <laughs> disasters, it's like right. you can pinpoint the moment, you know. Right. I guess you can always trace things back and say, oh, this would have made something different. Right. But it does seem really pointed in this particular case. Right. Right. So the uh, kids get to the wrong airport in Moscow. Their flight is not departing from there. They missed their flight. So now uh, the organizers of the trip have to kind of scramble. They're going to put together a new charter flight. Um, but it takes a couple days to get a plane. So their kids all hang out with their parents or chaperones in Moscow, take pictures, see the sights, go to the Kremlin, whatever fun things there are to do there. And uh, they charter a new flight. 
the flight they charter is on uh, Baskurian Airlines. It's flight 2937. It's a Tupolev 154, which is a Soviet aircraft or a post-Soviet. It's a Russian aircraft. Mm. But So this one was made in 1995. So it's a Russian, regular yeah. Russian aircraft. Mm. But as they prepare to board the flight on July 1st, there are 69 total people on board that plane. So that includes the 45 kids, chaperones and parents, and uh, nine crew members. So there's four flight attendants and five pilots. A lot. (laughs) So we've got five, yeah, a lot of people in the cockpit today. So we've got five pilots. We've got Captain Alexander the official captain of the flight, but they chose this flight to give him a a test to to do an observation on his flying, his work as a captain. So next to him, where the first officer would normally be, we have a chief pilot Oleg. So he's chief pilot over all the pilots at Baskerian Airlines, and he's monitoring Captain Alexander. The first officer is sitting in the cockpit with all the other pilots, but he's not actually behind controllers. He's not actively flying. We've got a navigator. Uh, so this is, a again, an older aircraft. They have a navigator on this plane. And they've got a flight engineer as well, whose name is also Oleg because Russia. And so we've got five pilots. Yeah. And uh, it just happens to be the case that uh, Captain Alexander is being observed at this particular flight. So out of curiosity, how many people normally are on a flight in the cockpit? Yeah. So now it would normally be two, right? Normally um, on any flight that you go on, there's probably going to be two pilots, a captain and a first officer. Captain sits on the left side. First officer sits on the right. uh, If you're facing the front of the plane. On older aircraft, older, larger aircraft, you'll have a flight engineer. A flight engineer used to do the job that now computers do. So they would watch all these mm-hmm. things. It's another, another brain in the cockpit, basically keeping track of stuff, monitoring everything. On really old aircraft, and apparently on the Tupolev, <laughs> uh, you would have a, a navigator, right? Somebody who's doing the job of, of keeping track of where they are in space and just helping them navigate everything and make sure they're staying on track. And on a long flight, you'll have a relief crew. So you won't just have two people flying for 14 hours straight, thank God. So this is a lot of people. <laughs> Technically, for this aircraft, only one extra person, and that's the um, chief pilot doing the observation. Okay. So meanwhile, in Italy, a DHL cargo plane, uh, 757, is loading up and preparing to take off for Brussels. On board, we've got only two people because it's a cargo flight, Captain Paul and Brant, the first officer, and God bless him, but he's Canadian <laughs> and so many Canadian names are just American names with one letter change. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it's fine. <laughs> so it's very important that we offend our, our Canadian huge number of Canadian yeah. listeners because <laughs> we're from Buffalo. So yeah. we got it. But so they are preparing to take off and fly from Italy to Brussels. Cargo flights almost always fly overnight because they don't have passengers on board. They're lower priority. They can basically have usually pretty empty skies to fly in, pretty empty airports. They don't have to contend with, you know, a lot of traffic, basically. So most of the time, cargo flights are flying overnight. And that's the case with this one. At the same time, it's shift change at 8 p.m. at Skyguide Air Traffic Control in Zurich, Switzerland. This Zurich Air Traffic Control office covers airspace that extends from the south of Germany into the north of Switzerland. So even though they're situated in Zurich, they're actually monitoring airspace in Germany and in Switzerland. Overnight, It's not supposed to be such a big deal. They actually go all the way down to just two air traffic controllers overnight. Mm. And as is their tradition, their way, they punch in, they get situated, the two of them. And then one of them goes to the break room and goes to sleep and leaves one of them to do all the work. Oof. And that's 
obviously against the rules, but it's also something that everybody does. Everybody knows about it and nobody says anything like so many things in safety. Everyone knows that you're breaking the rules, but everyone looks the other way because otherwise you'll be too tired to work and then you'll call in and then we won't Mm -hmm. have enough people. So, and it's like, again, as we said, you can pinpoint these yes, moments. Exactly. Right. Uh, again, this is one of them where it's like, oh, man. It's so right. frustrating. The accident chain. Right. So we've got Peter Nielsen, the only air traffic controller working, covering this section of airspace extending from the north of Switzerland into the south of Germany. And in order to cover that airspace, he actually has to literally wheel himself in his office chair back and forth between two different screens and stations. So there's two separate stations that each have their own radar screen, each have their own radio frequencies to communicate with the aircraft on their screens. And in order to man both of those, Peter has to literally wheel back and forth between these two screens. So that is the night he's winding up to have. But he's done it before, and uh, it's just another day. It's supposed to be, again, light air traffic at night. So he settles in, gets ready to work all night while his coworker takes a nap. Now, as anybody who's ever worked night shift knows, night shift is maintenance time. Mm-hmm. So a couple hours into Peter's shift at around 11 o'clock his time, maintenance workers show up and say, hey, we've got to do maintenance on the radar system that you use. You know, the radar system that your job depends on where you have to do maintenance on it. So we're going to have to use backup mode for your ability to track flights. And there's nothing Peter can do about it. And so he says, okay. And the maintenance workers go and shut off the main radar system and connect him to the backup system. Peter continues to work, but notices that the radar screens have slowed way down. They're not tracking the aircraft in real time anymore. They've slowed way down because they're in that backup mode. A while later, maintenance comes back and says, uh, hey, sorry, we have to actually shut down the phone lines as well. So they shut off the phone lines and say, don't worry, you can use the backup phone lines, right? This is 2002. Cell phones obviously weren't nearly as common as they are now. I also imagine that in Zurich, in the mountains, cell phones probably worked even more poorly at this time. Right. So they had to use a backup phone system. They tell Peter to switch to the standby phones. And Peter says, okay, because Peter is a professional. So he keeps rolling back and forth, looking at his slow screens, track a handful of planes that are flying through this airspace this time of night. The Tupolev takes off from Moscow for an overnight flight to Barcelona. As the Tupolev is flying, they start to enter the airspace that is controlled by Peter. Around this same time that the Tupolev enters Peter's airspace, the DHL plane is ascending over the Alps and getting closer to Peter's airspace. Captain Paul, the captain of the DHL flight, requests a higher altitude. He wants to get well over the Alps and he wants to fly where the air is thinner. So the higher you are, the thinner the air is, means there's less air resistance, means you conserve fuel. So Paul calls Peter and asks if he can ascend to flight level 360, which is 36,000 feet above sea level. Peter okays the climb to flight level 360. And by doing this, he's now put the DHL flight and the Tupolev on the same altitude. Mm. They're both flying at flight level 360. And they actually are going to cross. Their flight path is going to cross one another as they each head in these in their disparate directions. But they're miles and miles away, right? The DHL plane has just entered his airspace. At the other corner of the airspace, the Tupolev has entered. So they're far, far away, even though they're flying at the same altitude and set to cross one another. 
Another plane, an Airbus, is preparing to land at a nearby airport. That forces Peter to go over to the other screen and the other set of radios. So he's communicating with that Airbus, trying to bring them in to land at an airport that is actually near to Zurich. Peter doesn't want to deal with this plane. He wants someone else to take it over, which normally would be no big deal. He would just call the airport and ask them if they can take control of that flight sooner. So he picks up the phone to call the airport to ask if their air traffic control can take over that flight. The phone doesn't work. So just to yeah, please. interject here with a question for kind of our true crime fans that might not be familiar with airport airplane protocol. Is Skyguide kind of an in-between? They're responsible for areas where they're not near an airport, and then it's kind of standard to transition to someone at an airport? Or how does that work? So normally the air traffic control, there's air traffic controllers who are working at the airport, Mm -hmm. right? They can see the runway from their tower. Their job is to help planes land and take off, help them taxi while they're on the runway, Mm -hmm. and really only take care of planes that are in a very small airspace around the airport itself. But the pilots need to be able to contact somebody everywhere, right? right? So Mm -hmm. they need to be able to contact people who are outside of that airspace. So Sky Guide, the job that Peter is working, covers this large swath of airspace. So his job is to guide people to the airport and then have them switch over to an air traffic controller at the airport. So what he wants to do, the reason he picks up the phone that doesn't work to call the airport is he's asking them, this plane is coming toward you. They're going to land at your airport. Basically, can you guide them to your airport yourself and and basically take this off my plate? Mm -hmm. Because there's going to be more air traffic controllers handling the airport, right? So theoretically, the reason there's only two people in the office right now at Skyguide, and the reason why one of them is asleep, is because when you're covering a fairly empty sky, right, uh, over this like wide swath of land, and really all you're doing is guiding them, you know, across, they're not landing, they're not taking off, they shouldn't have a lot of needs. It should be relatively light. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this need is building, the reason why Peter wants to offload this, this flight is because as the plane approaches the nearby airport, he does have more needs. He needs to get lower more quickly. He needs to actually like handle the approach. So he just has more needs than a plane that's just flying through the airspace would need. Mm-hmm. So Peter doesn't want to have to roll back and forth between these two monitors. So he's trying to, yeah, lighten his workload a little bit. So Peter tries to call the airport to offload this flight onto them. His phone doesn't work. He picks up the standby phone to call them. Standby phone doesn't actually work either. So Peter has to help the Airbus. As he's trying to help the Airbus, he can hear the Tupolev on the other station, the other radio calling him. So he tells the Airbus that's preparing to land, hey, can you hold on a second? I've got a, you know, one second. Uh, He goes over to find out what the Tupolev needs, but he can still hear the Airbus calling him. He asks the Airbus to hold off. He can still hear them talking to him. So he goes over to the Tupolev to see what he wants. Another plane, a fourth aircraft, enters the airspace and calls Peter. That aircraft is trying to go in toward Munich, and Peter calls that aircraft and tells them, can you just contact Munich? Like, just call them, even though he doesn't have permission from Munich to hand that plane over to them. Peter is getting all these different calls simultaneously on two sets of radios, on two different screens from four different planes. That sounds so stressful. It's so (laughs) stressful, right? I can't, like... I can't imagine. I have flight anxiety in the Mm. first place, so Uh anything involving planes, but... I mean, doing one, being in charge of one yeah. sounds <laughs> exactly stressful in and of itself. Yeah. But four, yes. right. four. I can't even drive if the <laughs> right. radio is too loud and my child yes. starts talking to me from the back seat. Yes. Right, <laughs> right. If I have like two pots on the stove, one will burn, and I'm right, right there. Right. <laughs> right. So that so Peter is trying to. He's he's getting overwhelmed. He's got all of these you know different things happening. And if you've ever worked at a job that had a radio system. Like when I worked in aviation, it was a big thing that like, please don't step on each other on the radio. And basically what that means is if your 
sending a, uh, if you're transmitting a message, if you're talking into the radio and somebody else breaks in and tries to call on the radio at the same time, you'll step on each other right. and either both won't go through or one won't go through, but you don't know, right? You don't know right. that right. it didn't go through. So you have to listen. Is anybody talking right now? And if not, this is my moment. And then you break <laughs> in there. So, and on the radios, I'll tell you what, a gel. God bless them. You knew things had gone wrong if they just started speaking in Japanese over the radio. Oh, no. Like if they're speaking Japanese over the radio, nothing, no, no problem you could have would be important enough to break through. Right, that right. So <laughs> Peter is rolling back and forth between screens. People are asking him for different things. He knows that he has uh, an increasing load of work, but as he's skipping back and forth between them, it's it's obviously difficult to keep track of why they're calling them because he's trying to prioritize who do I listen to first, who do I talk to first, and he can't lighten his workload, right? At the same time while this is happening, the radar is slow. He has no phone to contact the other air traffic control towers to take planes off. He also does not know that as a result of the maintenance, the system that provides an audible warning of two planes coming too close to one another is disabled. He does not know, and maybe the maintenance workers themselves don't know, that as part of their maintenance, they have disabled the system that would give him an audible warning that two planes are going to collide. It feels like very pertinent information that somebody should know, but it's understandable why nobody did know it. Right. If you're a maintenance worker who's working on a machine, you might not know what, like, different things are connected to what you've just turned off. Right. So he does his best. He wants to reduce his workload. The only way to reduce his workload is to get some of these planes out of his airspace, basically. He's just got to help them, and then they'll all be out of his airspace. The Tupolev and the DHL plane are getting closer and closer to one another, both flying at the same flight level. At another air traffic control tower somewhere else, a controller hears his own auditory alarm go off, warning him that two planes are on track to collide. He looks at his screen, his radar, that's working just fine, and he can see the Tupolev and the DHL plane are on track to collide with one another. He picks up the phone and tries to call Peter to warn him can't get through because it's not working. His phones are turned off. That air traffic controller cannot himself, he's forbidden to personally contact the aircraft because obviously if you have different air traffic controllers who aren't communicating with each other, telling you different things, that's dangerous. That could seriously be Mm -hmm. a problem. So he tries to call Peter. He doesn't know about the maintenance. He doesn't know. So he doesn't get through to Peter, but he kind of figures like... I, he must be handling it, right? So right. he must have gotten the same warning I just got. Right. That right. would be the assumption. Yeah. Of course. Right. Right. He sees it. I'm going to call yeah. to make sure, but it's right. taken He's care got of. It. Right. Yeah. right. The pilots in the Tupolev TCAS system goes off. So TCAS stands for Traffic Collision Avoidance System. A TCAS system is a little transponder in the nose of every commercial aircraft that. Basically, all it's doing is sending out a message, this is where I am, where are you? And if two TCAS systems on two different planes are on track to collide with one another, once they get close enough together, both TCAS systems in both aircraft are supposed to go off, warn the pilots, and critically give them two different instructions so that they can avoid collision. If two planes are flying toward each other and there's no TCAS system and they just are both looking and visually see the other aircraft, they might both try to dodge the other aircraft by using the same maneuver, right? They might both pull up. They right. might both descend and then still crash into each other. And they can't talk to each other, right? The the pilots can't talk to each other? They can. They can talk to each other, but they, that wouldn't be a normal thing. Gotcha. Okay. It is possible for them to contact each other, but they that's not like a, a normal part of their Right, like they're relying job. on the... 
they talk through the air traffic right, controller yeah. because they're trusting the air traffic controller, right? right? They so can the see TCAS system talks, and it makes sense because if right. they're contacting each other, there could potentially be something else in the mix that they don't right. see. Exactly. Right. right. Bingo. Bingo. Ugh. So having like one way communication is theoretically much more safe. And again, so the pilots don't talk to each other, but the TCAS systems are supposed to talk to each other mm-hmm. and order the pilots to make different maneuvers mm. to avoid a collision. So as all this is happening, the Tupolev TCAS system warns them about the DHL plane. The TCAS system in the DHL plane doesn't go off. Theirs doesn't sound. So the TCAS system in the Tupolev orders them to just just warns them that it doesn't give them an order yet. It's just giving them a heads up. So it's just saying like, hey, another plane, watch out. So Peter is distracted by the other traffic. As that TCAS system warns the Tupolev, Peter is down there in his office on the other screen Ugh. trying to get that plane that's trying to land trying to get that out of his airspace so that he can go and focus on one thing the TCAS system in the Tupolev now sounds an audible warning traffic traffic the pilots can't see the other aircraft with their eyes it's dark out uh, so the plane the the TCAS system is giving them an, an, an audible warning and they the TCAS system in the DHL, finally also goes off. The TCAS system in the DHL tells the DHL aircraft to descend. That's the first order, the first direction that's been given, period, to get them off their collision trajectory. So the TCAS system tells the DHL plane to descend. Peter looks over his other screen, sees that the Tupolev and DHL plane are on a collision course, and orders the Tupolev to descend. Mm. So now the TCAS system told the DHL plane to descend. Peter told the Tupolev to descend. Peter orders the Tupolev to descend while the DHL plane is calling Peter to tell them we're descending due to TCAS. So he steps on their radio message and doesn't hear the DHL plane tell him that they're descending because he's actively telling the Tupolev to descend. Mm. At the same time, the Tupolev TCAS system tells them to ascend. So in the cockpit of the Tupolev, the plane full of children with Mm. five people in the cockpit, they have just gotten an order from air traffic control telling them to descend and their TCAS system told them to ascend. The pilots are extremely confused immediately and are trying to figure out what they should do. Peter thinks he's handled it. He thinks, I have told the Tupolev to descend. They are safe now. They are not going to collide. So he rolls back over to the other station where he's trying to help that plane land. The DHL pilots continue to descend. They don't know any of this because they're just listening to TCAS. They haven't heard anything from Peter. They try to tell them they're descending. They don't know their message has gotten stepped on. They don't know that Peter doesn't know. Suddenly, the pilots of both aircraft see each other. Pilots in the Tupolev finally listen to the TCAS system and try to ascend. It's too late. The belly of the Tupolev glides just over the top of the DHL plane, and the tail of the DHL plane rips through the belly of the Tupolev and cuts it in half. Jeez. The Tupolev breaks in half, falls out of the sky. The DHL plane has no horizontal stabilizer now. The pilots desperately, desperately try to get control of your aircraft, but it's impossible without a horizontal stabilizer. And it crashes into the woods four miles away while pieces of the Tupolev fall out of the sky. It's so sad. Just heartbreaking. Yeah. The people in the town, so this is all happening over a small town in Germany called Lake Constance. The people in that town hear the collision, look up, see the whole sky on fire, watch the woods near their homes catch on fire as debris falls. It's pitch black outside except for the glowing fire of these two planes. Peter doesn't know any of this has happened. 
No audible warning went off whatsoever. He has no idea that system was turned off. He's over. He gets the plane on the other screen out of his airspace, rolls over, and tries to call the Tupolev. And tries to call the Tupolev and keeps trying to call them and keeps trying to call them. As the sun starts to come up a few hours later, investigators, policemen, locals, people start to descend on this massive accident site. It's Mm -hmm. 40 square kilometers. Debris is everywhere. Because the Tupolev completely broke apart, a lot of the debris and the bodies have fallen, just scattered Mm. all over the place. So people are going out of their house into their yards, and there are dead children, dead kids on the ground. People slowly are trying to locate bodies. The investigators are trying to locate different parts of the plane to try to figure out what happened. Uh, Vitali is the name of a father who was waiting to meet his family in Barcelona. He had gone ahead to Barcelona and was going to meet his two children, his four-year-old daughter and his 10-year-old son and his wife, his entire family, was supposed to meet him in Barcelona. When he sees news of the crash, he gets into his car and he drives to Lake Constance and he gets out and starts to look for his family. Wow. The people there try to keep him from looking. They try not to because a lot of the bodies are horribly, horribly mutilated or burned, but they cannot stop him. And he's going through this little forest and he finds a pearl necklace broken that he had given to his four-year-old daughter. And then he finds his daughter. He finds her body. That is so devastating you know from from a true crime standpoint there are so many times where that can't happen because areas are secured and they don't allow family members in and it's just not possible with something like this and the widespread nature of the crash right Right. right there's no way and I can imagine Feeling there's a obviously a, like a cultural element too that's probably a little bit invisible or hard to figure out. Where I don't know if they really felt like they even had any right to prevent the right. family. Mm-hmm. Like they mm-hmm. try to keep them away, but right. how do you? Are you going to arrest him? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Right. So all seventy-one people, sixty-nine people on the Tupolev and both pilots on the DHL plane have died. Every single person was killed. People start to erect memorials all around. If they find someone's body, they try to mark the spot with flowers or crosses. They try, I I think anybody who's ever had anybody die that the, I'll speak for myself at least, like the the way that time keeps going is so violent Mm -hmm. or something. Like, you want everything to kind of stop, and it doesn't stop. So the investigators go through the wreckage. The police and the authorities go through and try to find all of the bodies so they can be buried. In Ufa, they create a special memorial section of the cemetery where they bury most of the people who died in that plane. Some people obviously wanted their family members to be buried somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Most of the people, uh, the most of the children who were bar- who died on that plane are buried in two rows in this special memorial cemetery section. In the order that they were seated on the plane with the Christians on one side and the Muslims on the other, Oh my God. And at that memorial, Vitali builds his own memorial to his wife and his two children, his entire family. He builds a huge memorial to them, and he just lives there. 
He Mm. is so completely broken. He is at the memorial day and night crying and crying and crying. Peter never worked again. Oh, God. Peter walked out of that Sky Guide office and never walked back. Mm. By all accounts, he was a perfectly good air traffic controller. By all accounts, everybody he worked with, everybody around there knew that what had happened to him is something that could have happened to anybody who was in that position. The, I mean, the guilt that, I mean, the guy sleeping in the bath, I can't imagine the guilt he felt. Or like the maintenance guys who turned everything off or the guy in the other air traffic office who tried to call him and just had to assume that he had it handled. So there is so much guilt and shame and pain in this story. And obviously, like any other major tragedy, the media wants to know what happened way before there's a real answer to that question. Right. right? So the uh, captain of the DHL plane was British. And I don't think anyone on Earth, uh, this is not, uh, listen, American media, we can talk about it, but I don't think anyone is more savage than British tabloids. Okay. <laughs> right. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Animals, every one of them. But they, so they are like pounding on this. People start to follow Peter around. They're staking out the Sky Guide office. Sky Guide has to like dramatically reduce their ability to cover planes in that area because no one will come to work because A, it's devastating. B, people are getting followed to their cars, followed into the office, followed home. They're getting hounded. The media coverage outside of Russia is deeply offensive to the people in Russia because for whatever reason, the story that kind of first hit the airwaves was that the Russian pilots had disobeyed the air traffic controller. And that's what caused it when in fact, unfortunately, their obedience to the air traffic controller is what caused the accident. Right. Like the complete opposite. Right. Right. So there is this chaos. The investigators are going through everything. They listen through the uh, air traffic control recording. So there's going to be multiple sources of data here. So if you're not familiar with a um, aviation investigation, they are there's going to be the air traffic control recording. So everything that Peter said and everything that Peter heard is going to be on a recording. There's going to be the recording, so the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder. There's going to be one of those from each of the aircraft. And there's going to be the FDR, the flight data recorder, which basically monitors and records all of the flight inputs. So everything, if the pilots uh, like pull back, if they push the engines forward, whatever they do, it's going to be recorded by the flight data recorder. So they've got to synthesize all of this data to reconstruct what happened. Because at face value, they do know what happened. They can see two planes collided into each other, but they need to figure out how that happened. And the purpose of finding out how that happened is to prevent it from ever happening again. So you've all been listening to this. So you got some of that background information, right? You got to hear what happened, what went into this. As the BFU, that's the German aviation authority that investigates plane crashes, As they're going through everything, what they land on is there is no guidance at all as to who pilots are supposed to listen to if TCAS is telling them one thing and the air traffic controller is telling them another thing. (sighs) Now, listeners of our show might remember the JAL versus JAL near miss. So we covered a story uh, a couple months ago where this situation spoilers, almost happened over Japan. And Mm -hmm. that in that incident, that had happened 18 months before the crash that we've just talked about happened. So 18 months before this, two planes had almost collided and almost killed 
more than 700 people, partially because the pilots didn't know if they're supposed to listen to air traffic control or TCAS. Now, when Japan was investigating that earlier incident, they had asked the governing body, uh, the International Civil Aviation Authority, right? So they had asked them, hey, can you please make some guidance, uh, like make a standard, make a rule for who pilots are supposed to listen to if TCAS tells them one thing and if the air traffic controller tells them another thing. And the authoritative body was like, no, that's okay. It's probably fine. They just did nothing. They just didn't make a rule. They didn't make a rule. What? Right, right. Not okay. And so this had happened. So this happened 18 months after that. And so when the BFU, when the German Civil Aviation Authority was investigating and they found out that that's exactly what caused this crash they pointed the fingers not at peter not at the pilots not at anybody except the the aviation body they said hey like you're supposed to like you are the ones who make these rules you're the one who sets standards so that pilots don't have to guess when they're in life and death scenarios and that was a big deal right to blame them yeah but In Russia, in Ufa, right, in this village that was so profoundly affected by that, I'm not trying to diminish them at all, but, and again, there's going to be cultural elements that are invisible to me here, that answer that it's something as nebulous as that sounds, that it's an accident chain that basically came down to people not having the information they needed to do their job in such a way that this, to prevent this from happening, that was not super satisfying. And so everybody is, you know, investigations take a long time. They're pointing the finger at this nebulous international organization for not making a rule. And we get to the anniversary of the DHL flight and the Tupolev crashing into each other. They get to the one-year anniversary and they organize a memorial at the crash site. And at that memorial, Vitali sees a representative from Skyguide. And he walks over to him and he says, I want to talk to the air traffic controller who was working that night. Hmm. The Sky Guide rep said no and pretty much forgot about it. He just said no. And Vitali went home and sat at the memorial that he had built for his family and he suffered and he stewed and he got angry and he didn't know why they wouldn't let him just talk to the guy who had caused this in his mind and more and more of the blame for his family's death for his entire family being wiped out got placed on Peter he found out who Peter was he found out who had been working there Peter was hounded brutally by the media he couldn't leave his house I mean he was so like just chased around by this horrible horrible tragedy february 24th 2004 about 20 months after a few months after the uh the memorial not yet two years after the tragedy vitali found out where peter lived and vitali got into his car and drove to the small village outside of zurich where peter lived with his three children and his wife. Vitaly wasn't sure exactly which house it was, and he saw a neighbor outside, and he went up to the neighbor and asked the neighbor, can you show me where Peter Nielsen lives? And the neighbor says, oh yeah, he lives over there. Peter was outside in his backyard playing with his three children. His wife was inside. Peter's wife heard screaming from the backyard and she looked outside and saw Vitali stabbing her husband to death in front of their three children. She screamed, no. she screamed and begged her children to come back inside. But they're frozen with fear. Vitali stabbed Peter to death, dropped the knife, ran away. The Swiss police caught up with Vitali. He was staying at a motel in Switzerland 
They arrested him. Switzerland is like a truly civilized place, right? So they (laughs) want to understand what happened here. They want to find out why this happened. And they want to understand Vitaly's mental state. Mm -hmm. They want to understand if he's fit to stand trial, if he knew what he was doing. Vitaly said that he had just wanted to talk to Peter, and he said Peter wouldn't listen to him. But he brought a knife, and he stabbed him to death in his own yard in front of his kids. Mm. Eventually, Vitaly was sentenced to eight years in jail. While he was serving that eight-year sentence, he became an entire hero in Ufa. The people in Ufa and the people like in his region in Russia were so grateful to him. They felt like he had like done something to avenge their children's deaths. In Switzerland, not so much. In Switzerland, right. they feel like this guy murdered someone in front of his own kids right. and his wife. So... But a few years into that eight-year sentence, the judge basically said that Vitaly's mental state at the time reduced his culpability. So eventually Vitaly was released after, I think, three and a half or four years in prison. Wow. He was released. He went back and was celebrated in Ufa, which really pissed off the people in Switzerland. It really mm-hmm. it caused a lot of like grating anger between these areas, between these people who had all suffered this massive tragedy. And that's it though. I mean, that's it. He served his time. He got remarried. He had twins a couple of years ago. Jeez. And all of these families have, have had to move on one way or the other. And I cannot imagine how horrible that would be that investigative bodies made the ruling that if TCAS tells you one thing and the air traffic controller tells you another thing, always listen to TCAS. Skyguide improved their situation. They made new rules and actually enforce the rules about having, you know, a certain number of people working at any given time. But that's, I don't know. I don't know. I know it's, I I don't mean to fall apart at the end. I guess I just feel like it's hard to, there's no like bow to wrap this up with, right? It's just, it's so hard. You know, part of the appeal of true crime is that there's somebody that is responsible. There's a bad guy, you know, there's justice it's impossible to not feel for Vitaly. Yes. You can't right. begin to put yourself in his shoes. But he right. served three years in prison yeah. after stabbing a man in front of his children. Yeah. yeah. And he has no remorse. He has shown no, no regret. He yeah. has just said that it didn't make him feel any better, but that... He didn't feel like he did anything wrong. Right. I think that he, I think anybody who goes through something that heavy where your entire family is taken away from you, I think there should be like, he should have seen a counselor immediately or there should have been help. Mm, Like there should have been something, some, and, and with all of these people who lost their families, I'm sure there were services. I feel like there needed to be for him. You know, like he should have been talking to people and almost like monitored for any signs. I think that there is probably definitely some cultural questions there with it being in Russia and in this village. But people noticed that he stopped shaving and Mm -hmm. he was wearing all black and he was spending all this time at the memorial. There were signs. signs. And I feel like it was a, a really missed opportunity from a mental health standpoint. Yes. That nobody ever intervened yeah something i think about is like when um so if if anybody's ever had somebody die in your family or someone who you love someone you care about and sometimes if you feel like you're handling it better than someone else sometimes that makes you feel like you really want to take care of that other person but i 
also know that sometimes people feel like uh, like ashamed, like the person who fell apart, like that's right. Like I shouldn't be able to like move on. Right. Like that I, right. and again, I don't I don't know if that's part of it, but I I can imagine in this village so many people lost their children and so seeing yes. somebody totally fall apart, I can imagine that feeling like if anything um like a really bad version of convicting like right of course he fell apart he lost his whole family and kind of that idea that it's not something that maybe that it's a version of powerlessness i guess i don't know it's not a complete thought but just the idea that that because you're right of course of course like i wish his family had been there for him i wish that that there was somewhere to place your anger Mm -hmm. That where yes. it actually belonged, right? And uh, I don't know. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard in a case like this because it's not like we said, you know, in what we cover, there's always somebody in the wrong, you know? Right. And sometimes right. the search for justice takes forever or it doesn't even happen and people get away with things. But there's always one person or two people or a group of people that that mm-hmm. did it right they're the right. ones they're responsible and in this case it's just a tragedy that was that yeah. had so many factors leading into right. it and you then know? he chose to take it and become the person that did yes. something wrong but it's easier to blame right. a person than to blame mm-hmm. an organization or a policy yes. or a protocol or lack thereof yep, yep. Because you're not going to get that feeling of justice ever, no. you know? Yep. Right, exactly. It's just like, oh, well, this isn't going to happen in the future. Well, right. great. It yeah. did happen to me and my family right. now. Yeah. And there's that feeling, that missed out. Yeah, that definitely like missed justice feeling Yeah, is horrifying. And it makes you do really insane things. It really does. Yeah. If anybody is interested in hearing more about Vitali or the fallout that sort of happened with him and Peter. There is a 2017 biopic called Aftermath. Mm -hmm. And Arnold Schwarzenegger stars as Vitaly. Wow. Wow. Now, Vitaly is not a big fan of this film. Okay. Um, (laughs) He's very openly critical of it. He maintains that Peter Nilsson showed him a lot of contempt and oh. he feels mm. that the the movie does not portray that. Obviously, we were not there. We do not know mm-hmm. what right. Peter showed. It's hard for me to imagine that Peter showed anything other than just concern for his children in the moment. Right. right. Complete fear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, again, it's very important that we insult our listeners. I'm so sorry, guys. I love every one of you. But like, I, let's be <laughs> honest. I think people like in Switzerland, for example, can come off a little not so warm, maybe. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Right. right. So if somebody shows up, like I have like dear friends who are Danish and sometimes they're like, pleasant morning greeting makes me think that they're enraged at me <laughs> like just there's something <laughs> yeah. there is something yeah. like cultural there where the what he yeah. read is contempt might be like you said a guy being very up, upset that somebody after being hounded by the media so much right. having somebody show up at his house in front of his children I can imagine being yeah mad but it's not like like oh I don't care what I what happened yeah. and if that's right but it's a natural reaction. Like my kids are outside and there's some right. like very angry person here. Wow. And there's a, another little thing that I want to emphasize here in this case that we have talked about a lot on our show. And that is media ethics. Yes. Particularly mm, yes. in the way that things are reported in real time when something's mm, kind of yeah. coming out. And in this particular case, I don't think that there's any one person to blame in any situation leading up to Vitaly's actual decision to murder Mm, Peter aside from that moment, right? But Mm. the media certainly fanned the flames of that fire. And, Mm. you know, on our show, we had a case where it was in Spain, Dolores Vasquez. It, It was a complete conviction of an innocent woman with no physical evidence, nothing, except that the media just 
railroaded her her. from the very beginning. And the jury members were allowed to watch the news coverage of her throughout the course of (sighs) the case. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's real bad. So it it is unfortunate that that contributed. Not that it's any reporter's fault or any publication's fault, but... I think there are always a lot of factors that right. lead up to tragedies and crimes. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and especially I think about like the difference between aviation and true crime is a lot of times like we have for aviation, we have those mm-hmm. recordings. Like we have right. access to real time what is happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, not like we, the general public, but right. the investigators. Right. Whereas with true crime, like investigators are trying to put clues together yeah. um, yes. based on, you know, like not this hard recorded evidence and all these computerized recordings. And so there's kind of um, I wish a lot of times in these stories there was a way to be able to communicate those like those facts to the public mm-hmm. in a way. Um, right that is a little more accessible and kind of like consumer friendly, I guess, if you will. Mm. Um, and I, I do feel like it would prevent things like this. I mean, the media is going to media and, you know, do what they do regardless. Um, and of course investigation takes time and everyone wants answers soon. And, you know, there's a lot of factors at play, but, um, you know, I just think, yeah, there's, there's a lot more that I feel like could be shared. That's why I, I love listening to these stories because it's, I learned so much about, you know, the ins and outs and like how genuine aviation is at increasing safety for the general public. And it makes, it like makes me feel safer. You know, obviously these really sad things are happening, but um, yes. it does improve for the future. So if those like the press and <laughs> the investigative bodies could, you know, somehow like fix that type of thing um, and get it out into the public a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't know. I just think it would be better. It's more transparency, you know? Right. Well, it's so hard because the, I mean, I think about like MH370, right. Is that's the Malaysian airlines flight that disappeared. Um, Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. we don't have that data. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't know what happened. And I'm not like, again, blaming the news for doing stories about it but like they there is infinite hay made out of that flight despite the fact yes. that we yeah. don't know what happened right, right. and that kind right. of we know nothing, if there's yeah. a tragedy or something like really horrifying like this that happens there is so so much written about it and so much thought about it and so many guesses and all of that and they are guesses or they are yeah. Theories. Theories. Yes. Right. Or I mean, the one of the things that was blamed that the, one of the things particularly British media theorized was that the Russian pilots didn't speak English well enough to listen to the air oh, traffic gosh. controller. Right. And that's just preposterous that just had nothing right. to do with it. That had nothing to do with it. Right. That's just regular like ethnocentrism or whatever the right xenophobia right whatever it is that's just normal like anti-russian sentiment yeah i I don't know those british tabloids man they played a role in that case we were talking about too yeah i mean yeah yeah oh yes oh no one i mean they should uh they should have all gotten burned down for what they did to princess diana (laughs) but i mean goodness They're still going. Still going. (laughs) I think about the coverage of the Amanda Knox case, too, comes to mind. Yes. I mean, it really can change the course of someone's life and the way that that justice is served or not served. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that there's an answer because we're all going to consume media. It is what it is. That's a good thing foundationally. But. Yeah, I would imagine it's going to become extraordinarily, I mean, I'm sure it already is, but extraordinarily difficult to find juries as we continue yes. on who, yes. are, who can be yes. partial or yeah. like not unbiased, mm-hmm. you know. Well, right. For any like big case right. of any kind. Yeah. That, especially with how it's just right on our phones right. everywhere. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So if you want to learn more about this story, it's usually called the 2002 Uberlingen disaster. I think that's how you say it. Um, okay. But yeah, I didn't know that 
the governor of California himself played Vitali, and then Vitali hated the movie. Yeah, yeah. That's just like twist, yeah. twist, like yeah. two yeah. things, very strange. Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, now I'm like, I kind of want to read this I movie. I want to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely need to watch it. I wonder if there's like a knockoff on YouTube. <laughs> right? <A> knock- <laughs> <laughs> Who's knockoff Arnold Schwarzenegger? Right. Like, <laughs> like whatever. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. It is. Yeah. It's a... It's very, very sad. And, oh, I don't even think I said this. The memorial, the permanent memorial that they set up in uh, Lake Constance, like in the area where the debris fell, the memorial they have there now is a pearl necklace, like a giant broken pearl necklace. Mm -hmm. So there are these like giant round um, black pearls attached by like it's supposed to represent Vitali's daughter's necklace that's the memorial that's there so that's Vitali somehow really ended up in like the eye of the storm here well he put himself in the he put himself in that position obviously with Peter but before that he was I don't know that's another I don't know I'm sure it's a beautiful memorial yeah, I feel, I've mixed feelings on it too because the daughter, Diana, deserves to be remembered. The son, Constantine, deserves to be remembered. All of right. the children do. But there is this hero worship of him that is yeah. of Vitali yeah. that yeah. is very now, disturbing. Now it seems like more, it's a little bit tainted. Yeah. Like, and yeah. that's very unfortunate because it didn't have to be. Right. And that's you know? something some of the people, by and large, like you said, yeah. Vitali is is really, really celebrated locally, but not universally, I guess, because there are people who who like his are his own neighbors and other parents who who lost their children do feel like you just added to like you just added to the fatality tally Mm -hmm. you know you didn't it didn't but that's I think a minority opinion and then I don't know I mean Peter's kids have to walk around like they're alive they're you know like they've got to walk around with this I mean who knows what life was like in their home for a year and a half while their dad lost his job and was getting chased around and I'm sure was deeply affected (sighs) yeah it's a sad one it's really really heavy if it's okay with you guys we like to end with a little segment called self-care and prepare yes i love that. it's kind of just our way to end on a light note after always a really heavy and sad story yeah sometimes we get so deep into these cases and like they're so heavy and for ourselves and our listeners, we like to give a little something at the end. So, so our self-care and prepare are our tips on how to take care of yourself in multiple ways. And our self-care tip for today, I'm going to say that whatever art, medium, whatever creative outlet you're into, find someone to collaborate with because this has been awesome. Oh. Yeah. yeah, this was so much fun. And like, as two introverted girls, like, <laughs> I I was like, I'm nervous. What if they don't like, what if they don't like us? And so, like, we love you guys. You know, yeah, take that risk really nice. and yeah. like, you know, meet yeah, new people. So, you know, paint with yeah. other painters, make music yeah. with other musicians, collaborate on art, whatever it is, or however much of a small hobby it is, because it's awesome. Yeah, And our prepare tip is that if you are going to consume any content about this case, just be prepared to be really sad. Like, uh, Cassie Mm. watched the YouTube special before I did. And she asked me, like, have you watched it yet? And I said, no, I'm about to. And she was like, okay, it's really (laughs) sad. And in my mind, I was like, I'm going to watch this like airline thing and it's going to be interesting, but like, I'm not going to have that emotional toll that I usually Mm, have when I watch all the true crime stuff. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, (laughs) 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 so just be prepared for a lot of emotions and it's, it's, it's a hard one, but just be prepared Can I add to that too? Um, Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because it's something I did want to add Mm -hmm. to this. If you research 
this story. Again, maybe a cultural thing. Um, there are a lot of pictures of dead children uh, mm, who died yeah. in this um, that are immediately available when you just search for the disaster or show up in documentaries about that. So just please be aware of that um, because yeah. that's... Trigger warning. Yeah, yeah. It's, that really shocked me when I was first researching it because I don't think that... That's usually blurred out in media that I consume, at least, yes. that kind of yes. thing. But Right. Um, it's very jarring if you're yeah. not expecting it. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I am going to also, at the end of um, our show, I like to share a fact, kind of the same as, as it's funny that you, you have like a kind of a mental health um, piece at the end because we have a fact to kind of make things mm -hmm. lighter as well. I love um, it. Oh, that's good. So I wanted to do a fact for everybody, obviously, but specifically uh, for our Bath and Body Parts friends. Um, and I know you call them the soakers, which I Ooh. love. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is for all the soakers out there listening. Um, did you know soaking in a warm bath can help increase breathing and increases blood flow? So I think for everybody's homework, we can be collaborative on your creative projects and take a warm bath. And that'll be... Yeah. Just yes. nice. Just take some Love time it. for yourself. <laughs> I'm going to do that right now because I take a bath every single day of my life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That sounds yes. wonderful. Yeah. Your blood flow is is just by far the best out of anybody. It's so full of blood. It's crazy. But no, but yes. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys so, thank so, you. so thank much. Thank you. Yes, this, this was so much amazing. fun. Thank you. Yeah, love all you guys. Love all you listeners. Awesome. And uh, yeah. Yes. Thank you for listening. We will thank all you. see everyone next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. We so hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed getting to know our friends from Bath and Body Parts. We hope that you'll enjoy their podcast as much as we do. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, you know we love to hear from you. You could email us at thepodcrashed at gmail.com or find us on Instagram or TikTok. As sad and difficult as this story is, it was such a pleasure to get to tell it with such kind, sweet, brilliant women. Thanks for listening. See you next week.